our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 133. And our New Testament reading and text will be from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Reading verses 3 through 11. So first of all, Psalm 133, through the word of the Lord. Song of Ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And then... Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word, your word read and heard. Father, your servant now stands before you as one who has been called and is set apart by the laying on of hands for the ministry of the gospel, for the preaching of the gospel. And yet the men that you call are earthen vessels. They're men who have feet of clay. They are men, as is the man who stands before you, who has the very the need for the very salvation for himself that he offers to others when he preaches. But it is your joy and delight to fill earthen vessels with treasure that your name may be glorified and your people edified in the preaching of the gospel. And so Lord, grant unction of the Holy Spirit both to your servant, and also to the ears of your people as they hear your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank Warren for stepping in and playing uh, this morning with Brenda not being here. Brenda, who does most everything, it seems like, and Pete takes the credit. But uh, we thank Warren for lending his gifts to us and assisting us in this morning. As you know, last time I was here, we began a 
sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I said to you then, which is a month ago now, since I wasn't able to come two weeks ago, that when I was a young Christian, this was my favorite of Paul's epistles. It's just so warm and so full of joy, even though the apostle, when he writes it, is in prison awaiting trial before Nero on a capital offense. Uh, and chained to a palace guard. Yet that warmth is there. And, and it's there because of the relationship between Paul and this particular congregation that's in Philippi. Now, last time I was here, it was an introductory sermon. We spent 90% of the time last time <clears throat> giving background information about both the city of Philippi, but Paul's relationship to the Philippians it gave rise to the writing of this letter. <clears throat> and then we spent 10% of the time expounding the opening greeting and salutation. Well, I'm going to flip that today. I'm going to spend 10% of the time reviewing very briefly what we saw in 90% last time. And in 90% of the time, we're going to look at the text that we have in front of us this morning. But I would remind you that Paul had planted the church in Philippi. That while there, Paul was imprisoned. He was imprisoned because uh, he had uh, cast a demon out of a girl that had a spirit of divination, which made her lose her powers, which made her, her owner, she was a slave girl, lose their cash that they were making from her. And there was an uprising, and they were put in prison there was the jailbreak where the prisoners didn't escape, if you recall, and yet the Philippian jailer was converted and he and his whole family were baptized and then added to the church where Lydia had previously been converted along with, with her family. But one of the things that's very, very clear is that Paul's relationship to the church at Philippi and to the Macedonians, Macedonians in particular, Macedonia is the province in northern Greece, is very warm. These were wonderful churches in Thessalonica, in Berea, and in Philippi. And you recall that, that Paul actually used them uh, to provoke to jealousy the churches in southern Greece and Achaia and the offering that was being collected because of the famine that had hit in the Holy Land and, and Paul was going to be taking it back. This was a generous people. We see that here now. Because the occasion of this letter is Paul is imprisoned. After the third missionary journey, Paul was arrested. Paul appealed to Caesar. Paul made his way through difficult ordeals, but made his way by ship to Rome. He's there. He's under house arrest. He actually has to pay the rent for the house where he's under arrest. It's a unique thing. It's not like the dungeon in Philippi where they were in the lowest dungeon singing hymns when the angel came and the earthquake occurred and all of this. He was under house arrest. He cannot go and come. He's chained to a palace guard, but he can have unlimited visitors. And people are coming in to visit Paul, and Paul's preaching the gospel. The guards are a captive audience, even though he's the captive. They're captive because they're chained to him, and some of them are being converted. And the gospel is spreading. It's an extraordinary thing that's happening. And Paul sees it. We're going to see that in this particular epistle. 
But the Philippians didn't know he'd been arrested. They didn't know he'd appealed to Caesar. They didn't know he was in Rome. And when they got the news, they sprang into action. They took up an offering in order to care for their beloved apostle and pastor, the Apostle Paul. And they sent Epaphroditus with this offering to take care of all of his physical needs. And they told Epaphroditus, you stay as long as you're needed. This is the kind of relationship that Paul had with the church in Philippi. And it's why the letter is so warm when you read it. It's the way he loves them and the way they love him. And so this letter, to a great extent, is a thank you letter from Paul. He sits down and he says, thank you for, for thinking about me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for making this provision for me. <clears throat> and so we come now to the letter and to our text, which is a thanksgiving and prayer. And I'm going to have really three points in this sermon. One is, is that Paul prays. First, that he prays. Second, why does he pray for the Philippians? And then third, what does he pray for when he prays for the Philippians? It's a very, very simple outline that we see here. First of all, that he prays. And that he gives thanksgiving. Look how it begins. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Paul prays for the church in Philippi. In fact, you can do a survey of Paul's epistles and you say, this isn't only true of Philippi. This is common. It's not in every one of Paul's epistles. But most of his epistles begin with a thanksgiving and a prayer. Even in the case of some of the churches where his relationship may not have been as strong, like in Corinth, in one of the two epistles he begins with thanksgiving and prayer for the Corinthians, even though we know that it was a very much up and down relationship he had with that church. With the Philippians, it's not up and down. With Philippians, it's warm and full of love and mutual accountability. This is the kind of church it would have been like. But Paul prays for them all. For those that are lovable and those that maybe are not so lovable. The question is, is do you pray? You certainly pray for the people that you love. Something happens and something's difficult, you're on your knees. What about those that aren't so lovely? I mean, not everybody can be lovable like me. <laughs> no. Some people aren't so lovely. Some people cause difficulty and hardship. Some people can affect us in negative ways. People say things that they shouldn't some people are not kind, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you pray for them too? That's an important question. Let me tell you something. If we would stop and pause and pray for each other, especially when there are tensions and difficulties, if we literally pray for the person where there's a tension and difficulty, You'd be amazed at how many things are being solved. 
at least how your attitude would change. Beyond praying for those, you give thanks for them. Paul gives thanks for the Corinthians as well as for the Philippians. Do you thank God for them? Because they're a brother or sister sometimes they're not so lovable. You give thanks for them. You pray for them. It will change your disposition towards them. Paul prays for them all. It's important to see that he prays. Another thing that I would ask you is this. <clears throat> Do you ever tell people you're going to pray for them and then don't? Yeah, I know. I'm starting to battle now. Or, if someone ever come to you with a need and you know in your heart that what they need is you to invest yourself in them, but you don't want to do it, and so you say, I'll pray for you, and then don't. Am I only talking about myself? If you tell people you're going to pray for them, and certainly don't use prayer as an excuse not to do what God is tugging your heart to do to help your brother or sister Christ. But it's important that we pray, that we pray for each other. One of the benefits I have is being regional home missionary in, in our presbytery and in, in, within the Orthodox Presbyterian churches. There aren't many of us. There are getting to be more. We're adding three or four this year, new regional missionaries. But there aren't that many of us. And so a lot of people know my name that I've never met. It is not unusual for me to meet somebody new in the OPC. Oh, I know you. We pray for you. Our church prays for you. Do you know what that means? When people tell you that, I can recall one friend of mine, another regional missionary, who was far more disciplined in praying for me than I am for him. He's now retired who told me on three or four different occasions, he prayed for me every Tuesday morning with his wife. Every single Tuesday morning. He prayed for all the regional missionaries, whoever they were at that particular time. And he prayed for the, the staff and the general assembly offices. Every Tuesday morning, he says, we pray for you every Tuesday morning. It's an encouragement when people are praying for you and when you learn that they're praying for you. But we need to be praying for each other it's important that he pray. If our Lord Jesus in his incarnation would go up into the mountain and spend the night in prayer, how much more important is it for us to spend time in prayer and praying for each other? Paul prayed, and he prayed for the Philippians. <clears throat> but why did he pray for them? Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, <coughs> I'm praying with you because you're in this with me. You're in this ministry with me. And you have been from the very beginning. And when you trace the relationship, you can see this. You can see this even with the gifts that were collected by the Macedonians to go and help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, in the surrounding region. They participated with Paul in this diaconal ministry that was there, and even in the occasion for the writing of this letter. 
They collected the offering. They send Epaphroditus. They tell Epaphroditus, you stay. They are in it with him. And he knows that. Paul is not a lone ranger. And because they're participating in the gospel with him, in his greater call that transcends his circumstances, that has him imprisoned and facing a hearing before Nero himself. And you know Nero from history. It's according to what whether he has indigestion that morning, whether it's thumbs up or thumbs down. This was a madman. And yet, the ministry of the gospel is going forward. Even through Paul's imprisonment. And the Philippian church is right there with him. These are things that we need to learn in terms of Presbyterianism. The Sunday school lessons that we're doing, which are church history lessons, they have a point. There's a point to the connectional church, to the relationship within the connectional church. It's important for us to be praying for other churches. It's one of the things I love about the prayer calendar that Chuck puts together for us month after month. It goes through the churches. It goes through the mission works. And you may not even know anything about it, but there's the, there's the church. There's the name of the pastor. You can pray for them. We need to be praying for them. Why? Because we're partners together in this ministry, the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God ordains not only the ends but the means. And prayer is important. It's a means that God has ordained. I remember one time hearing John Piper preach a sermon. I'll never forget what he said. When Piper's right, he's right. He's not right about everything. When he's not right, we still love him. Yeah, but when he's right, he is really right. He is a profoundly powerful preacher. And he was preaching on missions. And he said something that sounded almost, when I heard him say it, heretical. He was talking about how God has ordained the ends and the means, and in particular talking about prayer. Prayer is a means of grace that God has given to his church. And he says, if we do not pray, if the gospel is preached, the purposes of God abort. They come to an end because God has ordained the means. And I quickly said, but God will get prayer done. God will get preaching done because his ends are not going to abort. The question is, are you going to be the one praying? Or one of the ones praying? Are you going to be participating in the great ends of God through prayer? This is the beautiful thing. Not all of you can be preachers. God doesn't call you all to be preachers. But every single one of you, from the oldest to the youngest, can pray. Sometimes I remind the children, you remind mom and dad to pray for pastor. That's an important ministry that kids have. You remind, you tell the kids that, they remember that, and they remind you. <clears throat> it's important that they pray, that he prayed. It's also important the reason he prayed. He prayed for them because he needs them. They partner with him in the gospel, and they have from the beginning. And then we have in this this wonderful little theological tidbit that's stored in the midst of Paul's reasons for praying for them. Look at what he says. And I am sure of this, this is verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. 
what a wonderful theological tidbit that is that's stuck in there. Because what's true of the Philippians is true of you too. Paul could be saying of us, or I could say of you, we could say of each other, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. And he's not talking about himself. He's talking about God. God who began the work in you will continue that work and will bring it to completion. We talk about the five points of Calvinism. Remember the P of Tulip? We call it perseverance of the saints. Well, there's a flip side to the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints means that those who were totally depraved but unconditionally elected for whom Christ died, who are irresistibly drawn to him so that they respond in repentance and faith to grace, will continue to believe until the end. That's what perseverance of the saints is. But the flip side of the P, there's another P. It's called preservation. Why is it that you will persevere to the end? Because he's keeping you. Because he is preserving you. He who began the work will continue the work and will bring the work in the day of Christ Jesus. That's an eschatological end. Eschatologist simply means last times. That is, when this age is over, in the age to come, the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will stand before the tribunal of God, justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because you're being preserved. He who began the work will not fail to continue and to keep it. But that's one you should take and treasure. Your salvation is not about you. It's about him. From beginning to end. And so we have this wonderful little statement that's right here. And then he goes on to say, still telling them why he's praying for them. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. I love you. I love you. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. He comes back to the point that he made before. You are in partnership with me in the defense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reason, I am going to pray for you. Paul needs their prayers. He needs their partnership. We all do. So that's why he prays for them. He loves them. They're in this together. God answers prayers. And Paul knows that they do. Then we come to the content of this prayer. Look at what he says as we move now to verse 9. And it is my prayer. You see how he's about to tell us the content that your love may abound more and more. That's what he prays. That you will love more and more. That you will love Christ Jesus more and more. That you will love each other more and more. That you will love, yes, there's not anything wrong with saying, you will love me more and more. This is a bottom line. We must love each other. We must grow in that love for each other. We must love the Lord. We must grow in that love for the Lord. It's out of the motivation of love that we serve 
our Lord Jesus Christ. So he prays that, that their, their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. There's, there's a qualification that's here. You know, people say, love, 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 love. All the world needs is love. That was the 60s kind of thing that was there. But, but most of that was love without knowledge or without discernment. It, it was, it was, it was, it was, the, it was uh, talking about love, but it wasn't love. It's really grounded in the revelation of God and in truth. Yes, we are to love, but we're to love according to truth. We're to love according to knowledge. That's why the ministry of the church and discipleship is so important. The teaching of the whole counsel of God. That's why we must be studying our Bibles. That's why we must be teaching the Bible. That's why we need a shepherd to be here to teach us. Not that you don't have good men who come and preach and teach. You do. Except for the first and third Sundays when I'm here. <laughs> we're thankful. And some of you are teachers. And we're thankful for your ministry as well. But we need a teacher that's going to be our teacher here. And yes, when the Lord sends that man, we are to love him and emulate the Philippians. Love him the way they love Paul. We need someone to teach us. Our love must be according to knowledge. It must be according to the revelation of God, not according to the spirit of the age. That is what those who rebel against God believe. That's why the whole counsel of God must be taught and learned and known and believed. And why we can't take a step to the left or to the right of it. Love, yes, love that is qualified by being love according to knowledge and discernment. Wisdom. We need wisdom. How love. You need that with the kids, don't you? When is the love to be tender? Well, when they fall over in a chair in the church service, you know, the love has to be tender. You jerk them up and you run out the door with them when that kind of thing happens, and you're tender and you hold them. But then there are other times when love has to be a little tougher. Is that not right? You need wisdom. When despair the you rod and when not. <laughs> you need discipline. Discipline. Discernment, I should say. You need wisdom as well as knowledge. But that's what he's praying for. That the Philippians' love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And because this is part of the canon of Scripture, this epistle is our epistle as well. He's praying it for us too. So that you may approve what is excellent. Because you know what is excellent according to knowledge and discernment. You know what is excellent by knowing what is true, by knowing what God says. What Paul says is the Philippians need to approve of that which is excellent, approve of that which is true, approve of that which is We must be grounded in the counsel of God. We must. There are voices that are out there. There are counterfeit truths that are out there. They're seeking to find their way into your minds and into your thinking. 
God has revealed himself to us in a sufficient, extraordinarily sufficient revelation in 66 canonical books. What God says is always true. And what anybody says is contrary to what God says is always a lie. It's always a lie. <clears throat> that you would approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless. This is unto godliness. It's unto holiness. His prayer is that we would grow in love according to knowledge and wisdom that we would approve of what is excellent and therefore grow in purity. Grow in godliness. The fruit of the ministry of the word must be growth in godliness. We've seen this, have we not? Orthodoxy, right truth, always manifests itself in orthodoxy in godly living. And if we're keeping up head knowledge and yet we're not growing in godliness, there's something wrong with the head knowledge. There's something that's short-circuited there. Our election is unto godliness. We don't merit justification before God. That's ours by grace through faith. But God works righteousness in us. That's what sanctification is. And so the pure and blameless for the day of Christ, again, looking to eschatology, looking to the end, looking to the day of Christ coming. In the meantime, we're growing in grace and growing in godliness. This is sanctification. And this is what Paul is praying for them, that their love would manifest itself in, in godly living. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. You hear that language of righteousness. Again, the end of our election is sanctification. The fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and through our union with Christ Jesus. That's what we must understand about the application of salvation and the benefits and blessings of salvation. It's actually the application of Christ to us. Of Christ. It's more than justification. It's also our sanctification. And as we've seen, our perseverance. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The end of the godliness that God works in us is the glory and praise of God. That's the end. That's the end. So Paul is praying that they would love, they would love with knowledge and discernment, that this would be manifested in right living, in godly living, in righteous living. It would bring glory to God. Do you long for your life to glorify God? Do you long for your life to bring glory to God? It comes by walking in obedience before Him. Father, we 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Thanksgiving and prayer and for so much that it teaches us. Father, we pray that you would work these things out in us. Lord, we long for our lives to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray.